0: Suffice to say, as Frank uh, points out, this is a very complicated, very fast-moving area. It's an area in which many of us have been engaged in lots of different ways over, you know, potentially decades. But, of course, this particular period has been uh, a kind of escalation of all sorts of things that were sort of happening anywhere. I mean, I put crisis in parenthesis because there's a question mark about what kind of crisis it is, a political crisis, as well as a, a kind of crisis in terms of the humanitarian situation, the movement of people. Um, but it 's not a new crisis, and a lot of the kind of contemporary discussion in the media and in policy makes it kind of makes the impression that this is something entirely new and of course it isn 't um, It has a history and, and some of the things that we see now are very much a product of that history so um, as Frank said, this is um, really an opportunity to talk for the first time in an academic setting about. Um, some of the work that we've been involved in on an uh, ESRC-funded project looking specifically at the Mediterranean migration crisis. And I kind of became aware when I was putting this presentation together just how rapidly things have changed. That's partly in terms of the numbers. So when we were putting together the proposal in June, we were talking for the first time the number of uh, people arriving across the Mediterranean has hit 100,000 And of course, those numbers have increased very dramatically since that time. But also some of the policy developments at that time have been superseded, not necessarily in ways that have been delivered, but certainly in terms of the discourse have really shifted in the period. So what I wanted to do, bearing in mind that I can't kind of give you the data analysis at this point, because we're literally just finishing off the last of our interviews, is to really, I suppose, set the scene for our project, but maybe also for the Series as a whole, in terms of saying something about that crisis, in terms of the movement of of people, how many and where, and the routes, etc., and then um, outline some of the objectives and the aims of our project within MedMIG, which is the, the one that we've re- referred to. And then I thought I'd spend a little bit of time uh, using visual reference points from the fieldwork I did in Lesbos, talking just reflecting on some of the themes and the issues that are starting to emerge from that work that we've been doing and at the end just sort of draw out some conclusions really in terms of uh, where we think this work is going and what kind of themes we anticipate coming out of the data analysis. Um, I've put irregular in brackets in terms of migration to Europe because of course, there is huge amounts of migration both to and inside Europe. But when people talk about, if you were to Google, you know, uh, migration to Europe, you will only get references to the recent crisis or specifically to irregular migration. It's just not called that. Um, but the reality is, is there are millions and millions and millions of people work moving for work, for business, for tourism, to study, to spend time with family, etc. And that's not a crisis. What is a crisis, or perceived to be a crisis, is the movement of people irregularly across borders without any kind of um, rights of entry, although they are entering. And over the last uh, year, in 2015, according to IOM and UNHCR, it's it's now hit a million. It hit a million um, on the 21st of December, but it's worth noting that the exact numbers still are pretty unclear, in the sense that IOM, the International Organization for Migration and UNHCR have slightly different figures. Uh, there is if you look at any set of data you'll see slightly slight inconsistencies and Frontex itself has uh, acknowledged in conversation with uh, Nando Sigona um via twitter which was an interesting way for this thing to come out um but it is guilty of double and sometimes triple counting people <coughs> who've moved across different borders in this process so there are question marks about the exact numbers but i think we can safely say that we're seeing an unprecedented movement of people moving in this way and in very particular um uh, in a very particular context and across different borders, um, one of the notable things was we started the research mid-September, um, and at a time when people were saying, "Well, maybe the numbers will decrease because of the onset of winter, etc., and the changing uh, border conditions." And in fact, October was one of the largest um, uh, increases in the number of people arriving. So, 210,000 people arrived. I see in October alone, and that was an increase of 3,000% on the preceding month in 2014. So you can see, you know, the the kind of idea of a sense of crisis comes in part from these uh, sorts of numbers. Uh, Not everyone claims asylum, but according to Eurostat, something close to a million have done. Um, Again, it's a little unclear when you look at the numbers, because Germany has has claims to have and has got figures saying that it has more than a million who've arrived in Germany but there's only a million in total so there are different movements that are happening uh, people are crossing by sea and by land some are being recorded as uh, falling in one category and not another but certainly Germany is the highest uh, the highest number of people are moving to Germany and of those a very significant proportion are claiming asylum um Not all, but certainly most, and a lot of those that are not yet formally in the process have kind of nominally indicated that that's what they're intending to do. Um, As as you may be aware, in the summer, Merkel made it, I'm sure you are aware, made it clear that Germany would be prepared to take uh, Syrians, in particular that were arriving as a consequence of the the conflict. Um, And since then, there have been a lot of shifts in that discourse, um, away from a kind of very open uh, idea of providing protection towards forms of subject protection and even as we've been hearing from Frank you know now looking at returns to, to safe um, third countries etc so we've seen a lot of movement in terms of the numbers but we've also seen shifts in terms of where people are moving and of course at the moment because of what's going on in, in some of the other countries we're seeing large numbers of people in transit through the Balkans and you'll see stories you know constantly about uh, people in very Difficult conditions living in, you know, sub-zero temperatures, stuck at various borders or trying to make their way around the various fences that have been constructed to prevent them from passing uh, through that route. Hungary we've heard a lot about because, of course, Hungary has, you know... Oban likes to say lots of different things about what the migration crisis means for him and for Europe, uh, often framed in terms of religion and in terms of the, the threat of the Muslim other. Um, they do have a very significant number of applicants, which of course is entirely new for Hungary, uh, in the sense that they haven't had that experience previously. And I think relative to population, they have by far the highest proportionate numbers of, of, of migrants and refugees who are arriving through this process. And of course... The ones that don't make it are also being documented. And I think Anne's going to be talking about the IOM missing migrants project next week, Um, getting close to 4000. But honestly, it could it could be greatly, greatly more. The reality is if a boat sinks, particularly in the uh, Mediterranean rather than the Aegean, because the boats are bigger, and uh, tend to have more people on them and the expanse of water is larger then how many people are going down with that boat is often unclear unless there are survivors who sort of report back how many people were on it but those those boats are not necessarily being retrieved and the bodies just wash up when they wash up and it could be washing it could be washing up on the libyan coast or on the turkish coast not necessarily in europe and therefore not counted in the same way so the point of this really is just to kind of you know give you a sense of the crisis from a migration point of view although to emphasize that a million people is nothing relative to the very many millions of people who are moving for other reasons it's the the nature of the movement and the irregularity of it in terms of uh, what the policies are designed to do that has become the problem in terms of the, the, the framing of the crisis in the kind of political or policy sense um, This is, again, from IOM. IOM is is very good at um, visualising and providing these visualisations of the data. This is actually from the middle of December, so it's slightly out of date. It doesn't quite run into the million. But the point of putting this up, really, is to just kind of give you a sense of the geography where we're working and to sort of explain some of that so what's interesting is that around 150,000 people have arrived in Italy at the beginning of the year Italy was receiving more beginning of last year Italy was receiving uh, more people by the sea route than Greece quite significantly and that changed um, sort of June July time really uh, because that number 150,000 is actually no more than arrived in 2014 so for Italy the story is not dissimilar from previous years. The big difference is here in Greece, in the Aegean, so, and this is very much connected to this route in uh, from Syria and through Turkey. Uh, so we've been doing our research here in Greece, in the, the island of Lesbos and in, uh, and in Athens. We've been doing a lot of work in Italy in, in Sicily, uh, but also uh, in Puglia and up uh, in Milan and in uh, Rome and Turin. Uh, we 've also been doing some work in Malta malta 's a little bit of an anomaly. Uh, One hundred and six people have arrived through the this route uh, in the last twelve months. but in fact, Malta had very many more arrivals through other routes that are sort of not being captured by this, uh, by this uh, visualization or by the data. So from our research we know that Malta had about 1500 asylum applications last year, which is actually quite a lot in the context of the size of Malta. But those people were arriving not through the sea route because those people were being taken off to Italy through a deal that was struck some time ago, but rather were flying in directly from Libya or coming in from Greece or from Italy and were not being recorded in the same way. So this is, we're back to this problem of, of data to a certain extent. There are also about 35,000 people who have passed through the The Turkish Greek uh, land border, as well, which is not a small number, but nobody's talking about them in quite the same way um, for lots of different reasons, but partly to do with the kind of narrative I think that's developed around the sea arrivals. Again, this is slightly out of date. It's very odd when you end up presenting data that's actually only from sort of October last year, but feels very out of date very quickly. It's not really the numbers that I wanted to show you, it's more the composition of the different flows. So this is the Italian route on the the far side, what we would call the central Mediterranean route. And you can see that there's a mixture of nationalities, mostly uh, sub-Saharan African, but not exclusively. Eritreans, Nigerians, West African groups of various types and and backgrounds. And then the kind of Greek route we have principally the Syrians, around 60 percent, but varying on different islands. Afghans, Iraqis and then a kind of range of other nationalities including some of the ones from over there because the routes are quite complicated so you are seeing different populations moving in through the different routes and part of our work is to try and find out why that is it's not just a question of geographical location how does an Eritrean end up in Italy rather than ending up in um, Lesbos for example, we're currently doing the last of the interviews in Lesbos or in Athens and suddenly we're finding groups of Eritreans who we haven't been able to um, identified previously so there are shifts all the time in the groups that are moving and the ways in which they're moving uh, this routing of course is the bit that interests you know eu policy because it's europe um, and you can see here the kind of you know, typical but not you know, consistent routing in that's been going on and of course that Greek Macedonian border is the one that's just closed with people being sent back now from um, Idomeni back down to Athens. Bear in mind that Greece is in economic turmoil, has very little money, Uh, people are struggling to make themselves a living and this is a country that's received 800,000 people over the last uh, 12 months, most of whom have passed through but not all. Um, So there are you know implications all the way down the route but in a way the bit that interests us more is the backstory to that route we're interested in you know what's going on uh, in this part in terms of the kinds of factors that are driving uh, people to move and the ways in which they end up in particular places i might have time to come back to this later but one of the reasons why we're doing this work is is that these sorts of representations which have developed over the last Five, six years, people like Heinda house have done a fantastic job of mapping some of this. Mike Collier has been involved too. They're really interesting in providing a sense of those hubs and routes that um, are the backstory to what, what we actually see in terms of arrivals. But what they don't give you is two things. One is um, they are they, they don't have any temporality in them. You don't get any sense of time. You don't get a sense of how long people might spend in a particular place there's sort of a linearity about it which doesn't necessarily reflect the reality and the other thing is that linearity that the the sort of when you see that you sort of presuppose that that is your route and in fact we know from other research and certainly from our own work we're doing now that you might go there then you might go there you might go back there uh, you might find yourself back in Addis because somebody's told you there's another route in and so you don't get any sense of that kind of complex movement to and from or the fact that you might need to spend you know six months or a year in add raising more money by working in order to continue on the next part of your journey so there is some interesting stuff already out there but what we want to try is to try and move it on and to unpack some of the complexity that really is puzzling uh, policymakers, it shouldn't puzzle policymakers, but it does, because they want very simple, straightforward, linear narratives. They would like to be able to look at that map, for example, and they've done it with me before in terms of previous projects, and say, "Okay, well, this appears to be a very important uh, hub. Let's go and set up an information centre there and tell everybody how horrible Europe is, and then they won't come. That's the kind of consequences of some of the very simplistic (laughs) thinking that we see at the policy level. So, MedMig. Um, <clears> the <throat> title of our project is Unraveling the Mediterranean Migration Crisis. As I say, it started in mid-September, so it's a bit like a, you know, a steam train, uh, because we finished the fieldwork. So, you know, in three months, we've pretty much um, done what we need to do in terms of uh, data collection. Reason being, it's an urgent grant, and therefore there is a kind of an urgency from the funders perspective that we do this quickly but actually from our perspective too there's no point us producing reduce, results in two years time about what's going on now because we know for a fact that the situation will be very different then it's already different than when we started so it's still in progress it's 12 months and so we'll be sort of reporting our first report will be in march and our final report will be in september uh, frank is involved in nando also but we've got project partners in italy fieri with uh, people for change foundation in malta Eliam in greece and yes university in uh, turkey and the the purpose as i say is really to better understand the dynamics of migration in the region by providing what we are claiming to be and i think we're probably right on this the first kind of large-scale, systematic and comparative study of the backgrounds, experiences and roots of the people who've arrived in 2015. So we're not just looking at a group of migrants from a particular country, even going to a particular country. We're looking at migrants from across a whole range of countries, going to different countries, but at the same period of time. So the time is what makes the kind of commonality across the group But in fact, the variance in other factors is huge and very wide-ranging. We've completed nearly 500 interviews over the last three months uh, across 12 sites in those four countries and another 120 uh, interviews with uh, stakeholders, by which I mean uh, policymakers, uh, practitioners on the ground, uh, NGOs, others delivering services of one kind or another, um, and and fairly senior high-level officials uh, in many cases, to get some sense of the of kind of interface between um, the mi- migrants' experiences of what's going on and, and what others think is, is happening. Um, there's a kind of dual side to this, really. On the one hand, we're very interested in the role that migrants themselves play in that decision-making process. There's a tendency... Uh, And I'm using here the term migrants for a reason as a very broad category. But there's a tendency to um, kind of either assume on the one hand that migrants in the country of of refugees are sort of flotsam and jetsam that kind of just get taken along with whatever's going on. Or that in the case of kind of economic migrants, there's lots of kind of Control that they have over outcomes and where they end up going, and in fact, the whole thing is much messier. And the the ability of individuals to exert influence over that decision-making process varies by all sorts of different factors. Some of those factors are to do with their own backgrounds, you know, what kind of uh, circumstances they come from, their personal characteristics, education, whether they're traveling with family members, their age, their gender, all of those things, and their personal aspiration. But The purpose of our project is to understand how those variables intersect and interact with the other things that are going on that influence that decision-making process. So those are the kinds of things, that the the decisions that are being shaped by interactions with others. And those others have been explored in other projects, include things like social networks, your family members, your friends, states, because what states do can close a border. It can also open a border up. We know people are put on buses and taken across a border by the state in some cases. Um, International organisations playing an incredibly important role in the current context in terms of not just providing immediate humanitarian assistance, but also providing onward information, providing transit packs to enable people to continue their journey, um, hooking people up with other ways of making um, uh, that journey And civil society organisations, which I'll come back to, but they've become really important in the most recent period. Um, Actually, volunteers and individuals and groups, you know, meeting people when they arrive and and helping them on that next stage of the journey. So we see that in the European context, and we also see that going back, of course, in different stages of the journey. Um, And it's that interaction between the migrants and these sort of, you know, more structural factors, I guess, that really interest us. And what we're trying to do is trying to really, by talking about migrants in the broadest sense, is to move away from the kinds of abstract category of asylum seeker, refugee, economic migrant, which is essentially created by law and policy to contain and make sense of migration foes, but actually doesn't help us necessarily to understand how individuals or families operate in this particular environment because we all know through work on mixed flows, etc., that that it's messier than that, and that there is huge slippage uh, between the kind of experiences that people have, uh, regardless of the categories that others choose to impose upon them. Um, so as I say, it's it's really about trying to unpack and, and uh, understand, or understand this complexity. So that's partly to do with this idea of mixed flows, that it's not just a mixture of different variables or factors that are pushing people and and motivating their journeys, but that actually those people come together in terms of how they move through and operate in these different systems. So um, the people who we're seeing in the Mediterranean context at the moment come from countries where we're seeing conflict, but where we're also seeing poverty. And it's that that coming together of those two different aspects that becomes very complicated when policymakers try to respond. And of course, as the legal channels to enter the EU have decreased, so too we know that as agents and facilitators of one kind or another, uh, maybe referred to as smugglers, traffickers, depends on the relationship with the individual, they've increasingly come to the fore, and so they play a role in where people do and don't end up. Um, this has been documented elsewhere. It's also been documented in the in the EU context, but the complexity of that at the moment seems to have really escalated very quickly because in some cases there are very open borders or were last week and now they're closing back and in other cases it becomes very difficult so smugglers or agents facilitate different parts of the journey um, in different ways. The other thing that of course is very important is this changing political and policy context and those changes are clearly impacting on the kinds of decisions that people are making and are influenced by all of these other factors about how europe is so anxieties around the euro which particularly in the context of the economic crisis in greece at the time of our uh, formulating our research proposals in you know may june time they were right at the front of what europe was concerned about and they've dropped slightly they've dropped back as the migration crisis has come sort of to the fore but the reality is is that nothing's changed in greece and here those two issues coming together so that's in a way why we use the word crisis is it about a crisis of movement or is it about a crisis of how to respond to that movement given all of these other issues that are going on and these civil society organizations which uh, frank has referred to watch the meg med uh, moas the um, migrant offshore assistance station yeah, it's a, it's a big boat, which you've probably heard about, funded by two wealthy, very wealthy individuals. Basically, people mobilising their own resources, you know, volunteers getting on a plane in Canada and flying out to Lesbos in order to spend a week, you know, helping people get off the boats. This mobilisation of resources uh, by people who are not institutional, that's a real shift and it is clearly playing out in some of the things that we're seeing in the field. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time because I want to get to the photos, but just to say that in terms of our approach, the way we're approaching this, and you've probably gathered this already actually, is very much through the kind of layering of these different um, issues that impact upon sort of the outcome. So it's it's really a multi-layered comparative approach, um, looking at both, well, three different levels really the existing sort of meta level frameworks for understanding migrant journeys understanding how people move between these different um, locations due to um, broader factors the structural determinants of migration at the meso level so the opportunities and constraints that arise in the context of These uh, meta level or structural factors. So, that's to do with social networks and information flows, um, and also the cognitive and behavioural processes that shape the individual decisions that are made at the micro level. So, aspirations, capabilities, perceptions of risk, decision making, and how people interact with different actors along the journey. We're not looking only at one of these levels, we're looking at the interaction of the three levels. We're looking at the interaction of the three levels across four different countries. And with, you know, people from a very wide variety of different backgrounds. So we're hoping that it will give us a much more detailed and granular picture, if you like, of what's actually going on and get us away from some of these kind of ideas about flows as being sort of homogeneous, uh, systematic or straightforward movements of people. On to the photos. So I thought what I'd do um, is just – because I can't really talk about the data at this stage, we're at the point of you know, typing up stakeholder interviews and, and uh, entering uh, 500 uh, migrant interviews into NVivo because that's how we're going to analyse the data – um, I thought instead what I'd do was to show you some of the images of the things that I saw in Lesbos, where I was in October, and to kind of use those to illustrate what we think are some of the emerging themes that might be coming out of our research at this stage. Because the danger, even if you put up two or three quotes, that then becomes fixed in people's minds as being what the data is telling us. And at this stage, we're pretty open-minded about what the data might say. So this is this is a beach in uh, the Greek island of Lesbos. This is in Eftalou, which is in north of the island, where the majority of people arrive. You're nodding like you might have been there. You recognise it. Uh, that's Turkey. Okay, that's all you need to know, and really. that's the point of the picture. So you get some sense. This is six nautical miles, which I think is a about eight, nine kilometres. My nautical miles are not great, but uh, maybe it's less than that. It's not very far. You can see how far it is. It's a little further than it looks. It takes about an hour to make the crossing. Um, but it's, it's within sight. And these are generally the kinds of boats that people are making the journey on. Um, and as I say, Lesbos is the island which has received the largest number of people into one particular context. So it's interesting for lots of reasons, partly because of that, but also because there are very particular things that have happened over the last six months in particular, um, to do with the way in which civil society organisations, international organisations, and the EU structural level have kind of come together in one particular place. Um, This is a a boat arrival, very typical. Um, You can see, you know, many, many of these every day in Lesbos. Uh, You can see scattered up the shoreline um, the life jackets that you'll have seen, huge pictures of huge mounds of, of life jackets you know each one representing a an individual and a, and a kind of story um behind that individual um i wanted to sort of just show you this because it the it, it looks like a relatively straightforward scene and it is and I, we've got other photos which are less straightforward in a way but you can see i mean here straight away this is dropping the ocean this is a swedish NGO, so you've got people on the beach who are actually meeting people as they arrive I was standing next to a policeman, a Greek policeman at this point, who just sort of stood and watched the scene uh, as it unfolded. Um, you can always tell, and it's kind of you know, information you're given when you're in Lesbos. This is most likely a mixed bow of probably Afghans and other nationals uh, because the life jackets they're wearing are generally not orange if they're orange they're generally syrian because the syrians are have more capital and they can afford the orange life jackets which are higher higher quality so the blue life jackets people identify with the poorer groups who because they're poorer quality they're all fairly bad quality to be honest um but they p- volunteers on the coastline will say there's there's a boat coming it looks like it's syrians everyone's wearing an orange life jacket this kind of assumptions based on these kind of markers of difference between different groups that are arriving Um, this picture was taken just after that boat arrived and it gives you some sense of the other people that were standing with me on the beach there's the policeman and there's half a dozen journalists waiting to get their story and this is this is how this crisis has been narrated often over the last six months You know, image after image, film after film of people arriving on the beach. This guy was none too happy about having a a TV camera shoved in his face within 30 seconds of disembarking from the (coughs) boat. But he spoke English and it was very difficult for him to say no, as you can imagine. And so that story was was captured. Um, There's been lots of conflict uh, between the press uh, and photographers and the media, between civil society organisations and NGOs, and it's very complicated and difficult to explain how some of these kind of issues unfold because you have, you, have um, you know, you have trauma-hungry, story-hungry press and you also have very good photographers who are really trying to document what's going on and capture some of that. Um, and so you have a lot of um, tension when every boat arrives between the different groups that are kind of positioning themselves in relation to the, the people that are there. And it is a very peculiar thing to watch that unfolding um, uh, in that particular context. But as I say, it's part of the kind of narration of this crisis and how we've come to understand it and how policymakers have come to understand it. You may have seen um, in November, I think, just after I came back, um, Yvette Cooper was photographed standing on this very same beach next to the piles of Life jackets. You know, there's been an en masse sort of, you know, people going out out to kind of, um, you know, I think um, various the way uh, way the artist was out there over Christmas there was uh, uh, Susan Sarandon was over there I mean you know this is a kind of this is a little sort of media frenzy on this beach near Efteloo right now and it's interesting why that would be um not everyone makes it and Lesvos has had plenty of deaths um I took this photo when I was attending the funeral of a nine-month-old baby who'd just sort of fallen out of um uh, his mother the mother's arms as they came into the shore she was trying to join her husband who was in germany with the baby and a three-year-old child and they just you know didn't didn't make it basically so the baby was buried but in that graveyard there are others and after i left and i think after frank left too there was um there was a time when there was not enough space to bury people because there'd been two or three boats that had gone down in quick succession we ended up ended up in a situation where, where there were nearly 60 bodies in a refrigerated container outside the morgue because there was just nowhere to put them because the land is not you know it's a very complicated relationship between uh, different the church the state uh, the local uh, mayor on the island of leslos like everywhere and just sort of turning land over to create a new uh, cemetery wasn't a straightforward or easy process and there aren't people around to do the islamic burials so that's another issue you have interpreters and ngo workers who end up coming and doing some of the ceremonial parts so these deaths are continuing and they're, they're very real for the people who are experiencing them. Um, I found this, actually I found various things on the beach. When people arrive, they they have uh, usually their possessions in a, um, a bag wrapped in cling film or in another separate bag uh, with plastic around it. Uh, but things fall out, things get lost. You often stumble across personal artifacts on the beach. I came across a bag of uh, kind of beautiful studio photographs obviously syrian of a wedding and some family photographs and this was a sort of roll of banknotes so this is uh this is from the central bank of uh, lebanon so it gives you again some sense of you know the the routing and the journeys and uh what a, a backstory that's the bit that we're we're really interested in knowing more about this is Eric Kempston and his daughter Eleni who have been very prominent in some of the work that's been going on in Lesbos. They've lived on Lesbos for I think 15 years and they run a small craft workshop making various items. Um, but they've become, you know, part of the kind of apparatus of what happens there and lots of NGOs come there, lots of volunteers come there, stuff gets sent not always appropriate like the poopy kit which is basically a compostable toilet when there are you know there are uh i don't know what you call them the, you know the loos that you walk into at a festival or whatever those have been put there in some cases and and people don't want to kind of the idea with this is you can sort of sit in a forest in the congo and uh, do what you need to do and then it stays there and decomposes but it's not exactly appropriate for a an urban tourist setting so stuff gets sent uh High heels, you know, ballroom gowns, suits, uh, and other stuff too. That's much more useful. But the job that they have is to try and sort of, you know, distribute this and make sense of it. And they fall into a lot of conflict with with local people. the The they have good support from local people too. But the reality is is that um, Molyvos, which is the town next to Eftelou, uh is the the ex mayor is the head of Golden Dawn. Um, so there's a kind of local tension. Um, and there are lots of local dynamics that are playing out in terms of how the crisis is unfolding. Um, and, and Eric always has lots to say about what all of that means and why it's happening. Uh, he's been accused by local people and by government organisations of being a pull factor for refugees making that journey over from Turkey because if he wasn't there, then people wouldn't come. So it's an interesting set of ideas about what's going through the mind of somebody uh, the other side, actually. Um, UNHCR has come under a lot of criticism in the context of this crisis and nowhere more so probably than Lesbos, uh, where they have been notable for their absence for the most part. More presence now and whenever they send out their blankets is always a nice big label, literally this big, um, that gets into your neck when you're trying to sleep on the side of the road. Um, so they have come under a lot of criticism, they are starting to get their act together, but there are all these kind of debates about the extent to which these larger organisations and institutional structures have stepped up to the plate when it comes to dealing with this particular uh, context, and lots of issues around the reasons why they might not have done, if that's the case, to do with the fact that, of course, UNHCR is only, you know, it's 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 a a reflection of, of national interests, ultimately, and so they have to wait until there's a, a kind of a sense that they're needed. And of course, one of the issues is that this is a crisis in Europe. It's, it's sort of a, a war in peace scenario, as Aris Massini would say. So there's kind of, there's a sort of chaos that you would expect in a conflict situation, but you've also got a tourist industry, people going about their day to day lives, people sitting on the beach, sunbathing. It's not it's atypical of many situations. And when I speak to NGOs who are working in this uh, particular location, Lesbos, but you hear it from other NGOs too, the real issue is that they are not geared up for this kind of scenario of very rapidly moving populations. What they're geared up to and what their books tell them how to do is how to deal with a static population that's potentially in situ for... Months, potentially years, often in a protracted refugee case you 've got people from Darfur who are being relocated to Lesbos. This is a population who arrives on Lesbos and if they can, they 'll be off the island in three days off to Athens and then on on that journey, we saw up to Macedonia and across. so this is not a population that's waiting around for a needs assessment it's a population that's you know, hopefully, getting registered, getting the paperwork they need to do that onward travel, and it's just not a scenario that many of the NGOs are used to dealing with, or particularly the international organisations. In fact, many people will say that the the NGOs and the civil society organisations have been able to deal with it more effectively, precisely because they're more nimble and able to move people around and deal with situations more rapidly. Whereas this, the bigger organisations are kind of set in these institutional structures that are less. Flexible and less um, adaptive. Um, when people have arrived, they'll end up at this, prob- most probably, but it changes on a weekly basis. This is Karatepe, which is a sort of reception kind of centre, but people won't be here for very long usually. Um, I think, Frank, when you were there, it was being used as a registration centre for Syrians, wasn't yeah. it? I, I went two weeks later. It was not a registration centre for Syrians, it had all moved over. Memorial, which I'll show you in a minute. And in a way, that's part of the story—the kind of ever-changing apparatus for responding to this situation. Um, but yeah, these these IKEA flat packs—I think these are provided by UNHCR. This kind of big structural equipment is often provided uh, by the larger institutions, and people spend maybe a day here drying out their clothes before they go and get registered, and then, as I say, make their onward uh, travel. Outside this, uh, it's hard to sort of describe it, but the sort of you know, you've know, you got a kind of accommodation area and then you've got some processing and then it just goes down to the, the road, which is the main road from Mitalini, which then takes you up past uh, Moria and up to the north of the island. But outside on the kind of lay-by um, on the main road are a whole host of different stalls selling food and you know, um, various things that people might need on their journey and SIM cards. So you've got the Greek Vodafone in particular has become very keen on pitching up at all these sites Uh, sim cards are what enable people to communicate to family back home to people who they're in contact with on the journey to find out you know what's going on ahead of them on the journey this again is I think a very um, new phenomenon it's not entirely new but it's certainly been really significant in this wave of migration the extent to which um, uh, smartphones in particular have enabled people to map their journeys in anticipation and to find information via Facebook and other sources Frank, I think you, you've, you've found smuggling and trafficking networks have set themselves up on Facebook as well, haven't you? I mean, there's all sorts of info you can. It's you, all publicly advertised. Yeah, it's you know you can advertise your services on Facebook for and, and someone just needs to up, you know get a SIM card updated, get some credit, and off they go. Of course, it depends on how much money you've got, which begs us back into your personal characteristics. Syrians are doing this all the time. Um, because they generally not always but generally have more cash Uh, they're generally able to stay in hotels they generally are able to pay for their onward travel more easily Mm -hmm. afghans particularly those who have been on the road for a long time or come from iran tend to have very little money and they don't even necessarily have phones or certainly not smartphones so you can't say this is something that is everybody and that's really important in our analysis that we're not going to try to make these generalisations, that we actually understand, you know, how different groups with different backgrounds and different capital are able to navigate the journey in a different way. Um, But certainly, uh, this is a very important development. While I was on the island, Google Map, no, Google set up an app that you could download on your phone that gave you all the information if you're a refugee. And it was it was done in a very clever way. Um, It was done. It was it was white on black background, which meant that it uses up less light and therefore less battery time on your phone. So organizations like Google are putting a lot of money Vodafone into, you know, assisting in the process. So they were providing information about you know, um, where you go to register, how you can get a taxi, how much it will cost you to get a boat, a ferry to Athens, you know, lots of information about the onward journey potentially. So it's a, you know, this kind of line between the smuggler, the trafficker, the facilitator... And this kind of business that's tapped into this as a way of making money is really interesting and uh, not something that I've personally um, come across before. Because again, it's you know it's 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 com- a conflict scenario coming to a situation where there's capital and money uh, and opportunities to do things slightly differently than you would otherwise. This is Moria, which is the registration centre. It's a slightly just you know um, it's not a terribly accurate. Representation in the sense that it was a detention centre and no longer is. So it's a detention facility that's being used as a registration facility, and again it changed in its nature at least four or five times, even in the short time that I was there over a week. So when I arrived, the Syrians were being registered in one part, and other groups were being registered in another. By the time I left, that had changed around, and I know people who went back a week later and it had changed again. So there's constant flux in how this is happening and part of that is to do with the fact that this has been nominated as a hotspot so whilst I was there uh, um Avramopoulos, the uh, Greek uh, minister uh, came out and uh, opened up the hotspot and it was interesting to see that the day before I'd been on Eftaloo and I think 16, 17 boats had arrived within a very short period of time and over the course of the day something like 55 boats had arrived the following day When uh, the commissioner was there, uh, there were no boats. So somehow uh, that situation changed entirely in, in in the course of two days. And if you think about it, that's to do with the movement over from Turkey. So what's going on that kind of drives that? Um, is not always just about what the smugglers want to do and what, but it's also about what's going on at a kind of EU level in terms of presentationally and media opportunities. You know, lots of photographs with refugees shaking his hand and cheering. There's a video of uh, the refugees who are in the Syrian section cheering when the commissioner arrives, you know, great, greats, gracefully. So, um, and then after I left, it rained very heavily and there was lots and lots of coverage of how awful the situation was in Moria. Um, and it varies, I'm sure, you know, it's different every day. And there's been snow in Lesbos recently, so I'm sure it's different again. Um, and actually, outside this particular place, you can, once you've got your registration, you can spend 60 euros and buy your ticket to take you off to uh, the ferry from Italy that will take you to Athens. And then in Athens, you can get a coach for maybe a, a hundreds. No, that, that 60 euros will take you all the way to um, Idomeni, to the Macedonian border. So, you know, at that point, you have the paperwork that allows you to move freely within within Greece. Um, only for a period of time, but nonetheless, it is a sort of free movement. Um, there was a riot van when I was there. These are riot police that have come down from um, Athens. It was very... Peaceful in a few days that I was there, but when I went back a couple of days later in the interim there had been a riot insofar as the line for the registration had become chaotic people had been waiting for three days they were hungry you can 't move out of the line you lose your place so you just you know people defecate wherever they are because if you lose your place you don't get so it all become very tense the weather had changed and they'd fired tear gas in and, and kind of had to get control of the situation. So this can happen very quickly. The change between almost a kind of very light atmosphere because the numbers are low and the weather's good to into something which is really quite different and very scary. Uh, And you've got all sorts of people waiting around, of course. Lots of families. So again, this is an example of an international organisation trying to assist people to link up with family members. We know that Uh, People are getting separated on the journey. They're getting separated in the registration process. They're getting separated when they move on. So when we hear about unaccompanied kids as part of these flows, um, they often weren't unaccompanied before they arrived, but they became unaccompanied during the process. Um, Not just kids. I mean, you you know, people are losing contact with all sorts of different members of their families and organizations are trying to assist in that process of family uh, reunion on the journey. Uh, just two quick ones to, to finish before I uh, wrap up with some conclusions. Um, this, is the, this is the port at Mytilene. So people then go down to Mytilene. Uh, they put their clothes out to dry and they wait for the ferry, which takes them over to Athens in the evening. This mural, um, our researcher, Dimitri, who's been doing the work in Mytilene, he's from Lesbos. Uh, in fact, he used to uh, go to Pikpo, which is one of the... Um, organisations providing support to vulnerable refugees who have longer term needs in Lesbos. That used to be his summer camp, he lived just around the corner, so it used to be his summer camp when he was a kid and he told me that that mural was very new, so it it arrived in the few weeks before uh, I had arrived. Um, But you know little bits of sort of Greek reference in terms of uh, nationality and national identity. So there's some very interesting things going on on the island in terms of the relationship between the local population Uh, and the refugees and the refugees do pass through mostly very quickly and the most of the population of Lesbos have been pretty supportive but it has had its challenges there is exploitation uh, of people who've arrived in terms of overcharging for things Uh, there's also people who feel that the tourist industry in Lesbos which is very important has been damaged by what's been going on and there's also people that recognize that off-season refugees are providing them with an income they wouldn't otherwise have so you know it's a it's a complicated picture and just to finish on the slides, this is on the photos. This is uh, Victoria Park in um, Victoria Square, sorry, in Athens. This is a place where people, once they've taken their ferry ride, often end up in because in Victoria Park, you can hook up with somebody who can help you with the onward journey. Um, I just noticed it because of, of the graffiti. And it's not always the case that people are welcome at all in Athens. There's been quite some trouble and it was quite quiet when i was there but when when frank was there and subsequently there are times when this place is heaving with people waiting because they've got nowhere to go and at the moment because the border has closed or was you know has been closing for a long time in many uh, people are being returned to athens and these areas are becoming very congested and people are stuck they've got nowhere to go they've got no onward journey and they're left in athens which already is suffering because of the uh, the economic crisis So that gives you a sort of a way of feel of some of the field work we've been doing, and and some of the issues that are coming out of the field work in terms of um, the very complex range of factors that go into uh, the the movement of people. It's once you start to kind of unpick and unpack uh, the journeys and the different variables that come into play, it's really interesting, and it takes you well beyond into a different place than some of the existing. Um, literature i suppose in terms of emerging themes and issues again it's very early days in terms of thinking this through but you know we're very aware of the very significant differences in the composition of the flows between central and eastern mediterranean and i pointed out the nationality differences earlier but it's also in terms of gender in terms of class uh, whether you're in a family group or traveling individually how long you've been traveling so a lot of the people who are coming Um, through the greek route have of course left syria maybe two three four years ago but have spent time in jordan in turkey in lebanon others have had more money and they've been able to pay someone to organize their journey from um, a, a city to maybe all the way through to sweden i mean it really varies on how much money you have what your circumstances are and of course what your aspirations are too And when we think about, you know, are these refugees or are they migrants, because this debate has been going on for a long time, and there's been lots of discussion about what categories we use to describe people, I think it's really, really hard to say in a lot of cases, because the reality is that the things that cause you to leave in the first place, the decision to leave, can be varying, and it can be multi-causal, and then what happens to you on the journey, which sometimes over a period of years, is also varying and multi-causal. So people leave because of conflict, they leave because of poverty. Um, you would say that more of the people coming in the eastern route leave because of conflict, because they're from Syria, Afghanistan, and um, Palestine, and places like that. And then the ones that are coming from Ghana, er, uh, Ghana and uh, Senegal, from West Africa, maybe they're leaving more because of poverty. But the reality is, is that the people who are leaving because of uh, the conflict in syria are often leaving because they can't actually create a livelihood themselves anymore it's not that they necessarily feel that they personally are going to uh, be threatened although that is a possibility but it's just impossible to live or to get your kids into school or have any kind of you know ways of making a livelihood equally the people that are leaving west africa due to you know poverty and a mixture of poverty and conflict or repression of one kind they go to places anticipating that they'll work and then find themselves in places like Libya where they are seriously physically threatened. And so that it shifts for them too, away from being poverty into something else. So this complexity of the roots and the factors that shape the journey, um, it's rarely a single decision, multiple decisions made along the way, particularly for those on embarking on long journeys over land. And part of what we really want to do with the data is to map out that complexity across 500 people arriving in 12 different sites in four different countries and that will really help us to you know not get away from that map I showed you earlier but to sort of build on it and make it a more complicated uh, and nuanced picture so it is often about getting a place of safety and we understand that but it's also about being able to rebuild a life and when you talk to people in Turkey as, um, as Frank did and we talk to people who've arrived in Greece who've come through Turkey, the fact that life is so difficult for them in places like Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey, that they haven't got rights, that they can't make a livelihood, that they are discriminated against. These are reasons for continuing your journey, because you've already lost everything anyway. You need to get to a point where you can make something new of yourself. So then this continuum between economic and forced migration becomes very uh, problematic. And that raises the question of whether this is a migration crisis or a crisis of solidarity. And there's lots of discussion about the EU policy um, efforts, let's say, over the last year. And I haven't got time to talk about them in detail, but they haven't done a very good job is the short way of, of, of looking at this. And all the things that had previously been taken for granted about how the systems would work, when they had some serious pressure exerted on them in terms of numbers, they fell to pieces. And the solidarity that was assumed to exist between member states in terms of the Dublin regulation, in terms of all the things, the apparatus that had been put in place, basically just simply didn't work because there were kind of, you know, uh, unwritten and written rules about how you behave in this scenario and people simply ignored them. So, cascading border closures as we, between Hungary and Serbia, between Hungary and Croatia, and most recently between Macedonia and Greece, that in turn has, has contributed to the humanitarian crisis that we're seeing unfolding and has been unfolding in the Balkans and elsewhere. Um, and of course, Greece has been at the brunt of this in many ways and has lacked the kind of support it needed to deal with the issue. And it hasn't lacked it just because of incompetence it's lacked it in part because the eu is very reluctant to pour billions of euros into a country where they're trying to sort of manage the economic recovery in a way that enables them to stay into the euro so it's not just that there isn't the money to give the greeks there is but choices have been made about whether or not that money is going to go into the greek economy for fear that it might not go towards the refugee crisis and might be used to prop up other aspects of uh, the situation there has been a Absolute failure to do anything substantive or significant in terms of responsibility sharing. So, you know, way back we heard about there needs to be 40,000 places in Europe. Eventually, everyone realized that was way out of sync with the need and it went up to 160,000. The reality 322. That's what's actually happened in terms of people being relocated. So, this whole you know, talk over the summer about hotspots and registration centres and the relocation of people and responsibility sharing, great. But in practice, nothing really of substance has has actually happened. And they can't even get people to agree in principle to the extent that Merkel starts having these, you know, private conversations with two or three states at a time trying to get them to sign up. And, of course, the UK isn't part of this at all because we are peripheral to the whole thing. The Valletta Migration Summit in November, I think the fifth or sixth in a series of emergency summits designed to solve the problem, hasn't really changed anything as far as any of us are aware, Um, aimed to provide a long-term solution but in fact has remained very firmly focused on border controls and readmission agreements. This was in their meetings with African states. So no real efforts to create safe passage, no real efforts to address root causes. The Solution has been to give Turkey 3 um, billion euros to solve the problem, essentially, and you've got a speaker that's going to be talking about that later on. Um, And it seemed to have some small impact on people making the crossing, but at the moment it's very hard to know what's going on other than that Turkey is removing people, for example, deporting people to Syria, um, and we hear stories of human rights abuse, people being detained, etc., But in terms of solving the crisis, we're not yet sure what that means. And it seems to me, just by way of conclusion, really, is that there is a fundamental disconnect. There always has been, but it's really amplified in the current situation that the assumptions that underpin EU policymaking in this area about how you manage migration, how you deal with forced migration, etc., they're fundamentally at odds with the kind of complexities that we're seeing and these new relationships between the the institutional level in terms of the state, but all these other actors, businesses, NGOs, international organisations, civil society groups, who are coming into play with the migration journey in ways that have not previously been seen. That's it. Thank you.